This is the Incubator and the Neonatology Review Podcast. We are your study buddies for neonatology topics. I'm Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbo. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Neonatology Review Podcast. It's Tuesday. We are talking about maternal fetal medicine. Um, we are discussing assessment of fetal status. We started yesterday. We talked about a lot of uh, very high-yield stuff, and we're continuing on today. Daphna, are you holding strong? Yeah, I think I got it. I think you did a really good job yesterday. So Yeah, I learned a lot myself. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny how that works. <laughs> Um, okay, so picking up where we left off yesterday, today we're going to talk about a few things. The first one is uh, fetal scalp sampling. So what is what is that, right? I mean, um, it's um, it's used really to assess blood gas and the degree of metabolic acidosis. Uh, the one thing that is very important to know is that in order to do this, the cervix has to be three, more than three to four centimeters dilated. Um, and it's not really clear from the data, apparently, that uh, if the pH sampling impacts perinatal mortality or C-section rates. So it sounds like it's just uh, added information, and how valuable that information can be practically on outcome seems to be a little bit unclear. But uh, yeah, used to assess blood gas and degree of metabolic acidosis. And then they have this table uh, in section H called uterine and umbilical gases. And to be honest with you, I don't remember whether I had a question like this on the board, but there's tons of prep questions mm -hmm. asking you like, here's the pH from the cord, mm -hmm. where is it coming from? Or here's this pH, where is this most likely coming from? And this is super confusing That's uh, because nothing is what you think it is basically. <laughs> but it does explain the physiology of the in uterine environment. 100%. If you really think it through, <laughs> you yeah. have the time to sit down and think it through. So there's, uh, it's a uh, five by five table. On the left-hand side, we have the different types of vessels. And on the columns, we have the pH, the PCO2, the PO2, and the O2 saturation. And we have the uterine artery and the uterine vein. And I think so far, these are the ones that make sense, right? Because you're in the mother. Everything is functioning like a normal uh, human being should. And uh, the pH that the, 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 the gas examples that they give us for a uterine artery is a pH of 7.4, a PCO2 of 32, a PO2 of 95, and a saturation of 98%. Like your typical arterial beautiful gas, right? The uterine vein is your typical venous gas in a venous sample from a human being. 734, PCO2 is slightly higher because obviously you've, you've extracted and you've dumped some CO2 in the blood. CO2 is 40. PO2 is now down after uh, oxygen extraction. It's down to 40. And the saturation is 76%, right? So far, so good. But then we get into the umbilical vein and the umbilical artery. And, um, and so the first thing we need to understand is that the baby comes in line after the placenta, right? So there's some degree of oxygen extraction that happens before the baby sees arterial blood. So the baby is not really, the way you think about it is that the baby is not, connect, is not grafted on the mother's heart. Like the baby is not capturing oxygenated blood as it comes out of the heart. There's a lot of distance that oxygenated blood 
has to travel before it can get to the baby. And so the baby is not, in a, in a, is not receiving perfectly oxygenated blood. And so um, where is um, this oxygenated blood coming from? Which vessel, Daphna, do you remember? Which umbilical vessel, you mean, comes to the baby yeah. oxygenated? Yeah. It's the umbilical vein. That's right. right. And I think that's so confusing. I know, because, because it's we, just opposite of what you have learned. But I think it, if you could just remember, it's the opposite of what you have learned. I hate those. You know that. <laughs> it's a, but, but right, it's like the baby's, the, the, the umbilical vein comes uh, from, uh, from to the baby back to the heart. And it's actually carrying this arterial blood that uh, is coming from the mother. And so that's why in the umbilical vein, you will see a pH of 735 a PCO2 of 38, and a PAO2 of 29, with an oxygen saturation of 68%. Mm -hmm. And so even though like, it's kind of crazy to think that this is sort of the best uh, arterial right. blood the baby is going to be receiving, but it also explains why we always say that babies are comfortable in a more hypoxic environment. They're, yeah, because they've been living in it. Exactly. <laughs> And, then, and just to clarify, when you say arterial blood, you mean oxygenated blood, just so arterial blood from the mother, <laughs> right? Yeah, so the mother's arterial blood eventually right. will make its way the to the umbilical vein. It's going to go into the umbilical right. vein. There's no direct communication, right? It's not like at some point the uh, uterine artery becomes the, no. It's it's a bunch of tributaries that eventually, right? The baby's getting these vessels are are anchored in the in the placenta. And then you have the umbilical artery, which is where your the baby's um, blood is leaving to go back to the mother uh, for or, uh, through the venous system. And so the umbilical artery has a pH of seven point two eight, a PCO two that is higher forty nine, and a PO two that's even lower than what it was before in the umbilical vein of twenty nine. It's now eighteen, mm -hmm. and the O two saturation is thirty percent. So. It may be confusing listening to this over the podcast, but what I'm trying to say is that, first of all, do not forget that the umbilical vein is where the blood actually comes to the baby and goes, right? And that's sort of the fresh blood coming from the mother to be used for oxygenation and things like that. And the umbilical artery is where you'll have your deoxygenated blood and none of them are technically normal. The PaO2 is at its best 29. Uh, in the artery, it is 18. And the best oxygen saturation a baby is going to see is 68%. And then they have like this this um, this classification where they say that the PaO2 is best in the maternal uterine artery. Makes sense. But then maternal uterine vein, then umbilical vein, then umbilical artery. But we sort of just mentioned that, so that's that's fine. Okay. Clear as mud. What? Clear as mud. Clear as mud. I love that. That table is my favorite. When I used <laughs> to have those questions, I was like, ah, oh, easy. I get it. Because now it's like, I'm not going to get tricked. <laughs> Okay, so let's talk about amniotic fluid. So um, that's section I on page, uh, sorry, 44. And basically the amniotic fluid is constantly evolving. Uh, so let's talk about its composition. And it really changes from first to second to third trimester. In the first trimester, the osmolality is similar to maternal and fetal blood. There's minimal uh, fetal urine output, right? The kidneys are not really fully functional. So the fluid is formed by active transport of sodium and chloride across the amniotic membrane and fetal skin with uh, water passively following. 
And during the second trimester, when fetal urine production becomes significant around like 12 weeks of gestation, it leads to a decrease in amniotic fluid osmolality. And as we go into the third trimester, this osmolality continues to go down as uh, dialysis across the fetal skin is blocked because now there's keratinization of the skin and maturation. And with maturation of the fetal renal function, uh, there's increased intravascular sodium reabsorption that leads to the decreased urine and uh, decreased urine and amniotic fluid osmolality. Um, yeah, in terms of the volume of amniotic fluid, it actually increases uh, up until uh, 32 weeks of gestation. It sort of um, stays constant between 32 and 39 weeks of gestation, and then between 40 and 44 weeks, uh, there's a sharp decrease. Uh, to about 400 ml uh, at uh, at uh, 42 weeks, so it's sort of a sort of a sort of a dome shape. So it's like it goes up until 32 weeks, sort of stays stable until 39, and then starts going down. Okay. There's some hormonal regulation of the amniotic fluid volume. I've never seen a question that I can recall on that, but it seems like it's a super easily testable. Prolactin decreases permeability of the amnion to water, and vasopressin increases amniotic fluid osmolality. Uh, maternal dehydration will lead to decreased amniotic fluid volume and increased amniotic fluid osmolality. Okay. So now let's talk about uh, abnormal amniotic fluid levels. So an, an abnormal, um, first of all, an, a normal amniotic fluid index is 8 to 18 centimeters. It's measured in centimeters because, like we said, we divide the uterus into four quadrants and we look at the, at the pocket, at the largest vertical pockets in each quadrant filled with amniotic fluid, and you just measure that, basically. So you could have abnormal <coughs> amniotic fluid levels, and that could lead you to either oligohydramnios or polyhydramnios. So oligohydramnios is an AFI of less than five. And um, the incidence is about like 0.5 to 8% of pregnancies, and it's associated with an increased risk of congenital anomalies. There's several possible etiologies. There's actually six that are listed here. Either decreased urine, pro urine production, and that could be all the different reasons you can think of for why baby would have decreased urine production, placental insufficiency, premature rupture of membrane. Obviously, if you're leaking amniotic fluid, uh, then yeah, that explains it. Twin-to-twin -twin transfusion syndrome, and then some maternal medications such as indomethacin, um, and angiotensin convert, converting enzyme inhibitors. And num lastly, number six, idiopathic. The evaluation should involve uh, an assessment of the mother, looking out for uh, rupture of membrane, uh, assess for renal disease, hypertension, and so on. And then should also include fetal, assess fetal assessment, trying to assess the urinary tract, assess fetal growth, um, fetal lung growth, and potential for congenital anomalies. How do you manage this? You just have to monitor, uh, do fetal monitoring. They mention other potential interventions, such as uh, amnio infusion, where basically you instill fluid during labor to attempt to decrease the stress on the fetus during uh, labor. You can consider some fetal intervention, like you know, putting in a vesicoamniotic shunt if you have sort of these urinary uh, tract anomalies. Uh, you could address maternal dehydration, and you could consider delivery if the baby is uh, already at term or post term. Uh, there is significantly asso significant associated morbidity with oligohydramnios. There's increased risk of meconium passage, fetal distress, perineal depression, and delivery by C-section. There's also the risk of developing, depending on how long, um, the, uh, if you have chronic oligohydramnios, right, you could have contractures, you could have Potter syndrome, thoracic compression, and pulmonary hypoplasia. 
the mortality is strikingly high. Increase in perinatal mortality to about 56 per 1,000 births. And consider that baseline is usually 2 per 1,000 births. And if you have severe oligohydramnios, perinatal mortality actually increases to 187 per 1,000. So almost yeah. 20% mortality. So um, very, very scary stuff. Yeah, you know, it's sometimes flippantly addressed in huddle, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, oh, delivery for oligo. <laughs> yeah, but and that's when, um, right, that's when you want to make sure that everything's done very accurately, both the measurements, the assessment, because right. it's not really helpful. Oligo in and of itself is not really helpful. It's mm-hmm. how bad is it? Uh, how long has it been going on? What right. do we have a good idea? What's yeah. the cause? Exactly. Uh, on the other end of the spectrum, we have polyhydramnios, which is that the AFI is way above 18. It's actually more than 24. It's actually happening in uh, less commonly in pregnancies. Oligo was 0.5 to 8%. Polyhydramnios is 0.1 to 3% of pregnancies. The majority of um, pregnancies affected by polyhydramnios are idiopathic. Uh, it could be due to GI anomalies, right? So if you so if you think about it, right, the amniotic fluid is supposed to be swallowed and urinated. So if you have oligo, you're not making, so something is wrong with your GU renal tract. If you have poly, maybe you're not able to swallow uh, the amniotic fluid. So that means GI anomalies, duodenal, esophageal atresia, it could also be CNS anomalies that are affecting the baby's ability to swallow the amniotic fluid. Uh, you could have high drops from severe fetal anemia. You could have uh, fetal uh, polyuria. Uh, you could have uh, some genetic syndromes and uh, some cardiac anomalies. The evaluation is the same, assess the mother, assess the baby. And the management is similar as well. So uh, not similar as well, I'm sorry. Fetal monitoring is just like an oligohydramnios. But uh, what you could do is if you have uh, high drops, you can do in utero transfusion for severe anemia. You could do something called reductive amniocentesis, where you can actually try to decrease the amniotic fluid. And it may be um, maybe something that'd be technically complicated to do. Uh, and another option is doing prostaglandin synthase uh, inhibitors, for example, endomethacin. So we sort of said that endomethacin, if a mother is taking endomethacin, she could have oligo because of it. Well, it's not really surprising that if the mother has poly, we could give her endomethacin and try to lower her um, fluid volume. In terms of morbidity and uh, mortality, uh, significant morbidities are associated with it. In utero, you could have abnormal fetal positioning. It could lead to placental abruption. It could lead to premature rupture of membrane. During labor and delivery, it could lead to preterm labor, delivery by C-section, fetal distress, perinatal depression, admission to the NICU. Uh, postnatally, these babies can have macrosomia, postpartum maternal hemorrhage, and the mortality is increased uh, from baseline of two per thousand to four per 1,000 births. So that's uh, polyhydramnios and um, oligohydramnios. Another thing that's mentioned in that section is the amniotic band syndrome. And that's something that's always very peculiar um, because it's not so easy to understand why it's happening and who is it happening to. And uh, basically, it's when you have these amniotic bands that are wrapping around a baby's limb, right? And basically, basically create a tourniquet and the baby's limb or whatever, whatever's uh, wrapped uh, whatever the amniotic band wraps around is is poorly developed. So what do we think is happening? Well, it's thought to occur as a result of a partial rupture of the amniotic sac and separation from the uterus, i.e. the chorion remains intact. So for example, if you, got, if you guys are driving in the car, you remember that the, you have the baby, baby's in the amniotic fluid, and then there's like two little layers around the bubble. And the first one is your amnion, and the second one is the chorion. So obviously, if you break through amnion and chorion, like you've, you've pretty much 
broken through everything. But in this case, the Corian remains intact, and you have um, and you have uh, the the fibrous bands from the amnion that float in the amniotic fluid and encircle part of the fetus. Now the thing is that the band doesn't grow in size, but the baby does grow, and so that's how basically it creates this this compression. Um, and constriction in the area that they encircle. And the thing that's interesting is that while this is the theory that's the most prevalent, it doesn't really explain then why some of these, uh, it, it does explain why we have these digits slash lip constriction or amputation, but it doesn't really explain why we have other stuff like cleft lip, cleft palate, um, and maybe that could be an insult to fetal circulation, they say. So that, that really remains to be elucidated. Okay, um, a few more. Um, a few more things to go over, and I think we can call it a day for today. Um, middle cerebral Doppler assessment, uh, so basically is a, is another way um, to measure basically fetal uh, well-being and actually to measure for fetal anemia. And so what you do is that you measure the peak systolic velocity in the middle cerebral artery, and the greater the velocity, the worse the anemia, because um, the body is really trying to compensate for the lack of red blood cells by increasing blood flow to the brain of heart. So uh, as the velocity increases, it means that the anemia is more severe. It's the best current non-invasive approach to diagnose fetal anemia. That sounds like a question. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so um, remember that. You could also do uh, umbilical artery Doppler villa symmetry, where basically you assess the flow velocity in the umbilical artery during systole and diastole, and you basically use a UA Doppler waveform to estimate the downstream placental vas vascular resistance and placental blood flow. Um, so if you're thinking that there's uroplacental insufficiency, maternal disease, uh, you can use that. And so if you remember what a Doppler looks like, so you basically have uh, a wave that goes up and it comes right back down. Um, technically, the, there should be almost like, oh, this is terrible what I'm going to say, but that's fine. Almost like peep on the vent, you know, like you should have like a buffer at the bottom, which indicates yeah, I the, can see that. right. Which yeah. indicates the resistance, um, the, the, the peripheral vascular resistance. And basically you could have two things. You could have absent and diastolic UA velocity, which means that the wave goes up and goes back down all the way no to peep. the no peak, no peep to the baseline. That's it. Or you could have even reversed end diastolic flow, which means that the wave comes all the way back down, crosses zero, and actually goes into the negative. Now, if you have an absent uh, end diastolic flow, it means that you have increased uh, placental vascular resistance associated with increased in UA systolic and diastolic ratio, correlates with an increased perinatal mortality, further testing is needed. And if you have reversed end diastolic flow, um, it's even more significant increase in placental vascular resistance and uh, even greater risk of perinatal mortality. Finally, the last thing we can talk about in the section on fetal assessment is the ductus venosus Doppler assessment. And basically, all I'm going to say about that is that uh, the ductus um, venosus lacks any valves and thus the flow pattern corresponds to pressure changes within the right atrium and um, if there's continued absent or reverse ductus venosus flow during atrial systole, it suggests fetal cardiac compromise. Um, I haven't seen much of that, to be honest, but it's a, right. it's a, small, it's a small little section. Um, but yeah, and that concludes uh, this little section on um, assessment of fetal status. Do you want a question? Let's go. Okay. Maternal fetal medicine question 54. Which of the following statements about prenatal Doppler velocimetry is true? 
Okay, this is a long one. You're looking for the true answer. A, a systolic to diastolic or SD ratio in the umbilical arteries greater than one is considered abnormal beyond 30 weeks gestation. B, growth-restricted fetuses have a decreased systolic to diastolic ratio. C, high resistance in the fetal placental and systemic vascular beds results in a decreased SD ratio. D, it assesses flow velocity in the umbilical veins during systole and diastole. Or E, placentas of fetuses that exhibit abnormal Doppler flow are characterized by slender capillaries with decreased capillary loops in gas exchanging terminal villi. I don't know how you can answer that question without looking at it. <laughs> yeah, it's hard. Uh, maybe I should have asked you to share your screen. But um, so the systolic to, distol to diastolic ratio is the one you have to repeat because I, I, I don't remember what it said. It sounded correct. But a, a systolic to diastolic ratio in the umbilical arteries greater than one is considered abnormal. Okay. Oh, or no, high resistance in the fetal placental and systemic vascular beds results in a decreased SD ratio. Or growth restricted fetuses have a decreased systolic to diastolic ratio. Ugh. I'm, I'm lost. I want to say the second one you just mentioned. Um, no, that's not the answer. <laughs> it felt like one of those top four were the, were the right answer. So I don't blame you for picking one of them. Um, but you have to remember, I think the easiest way to remember this is that um, it's the SD ratio. So systolic over diastolic. But usually when we're talking about these, we're talking about the end diastolic velocity. So we're so used to, I don't know, maybe because of blood pressure, systolic blood pressure, but we're really like at the end diastolic. So the um, denominator. So the correct answer is E. Placentas of fetuses that exhibit abnormal Doppler flow velocity are characterized by slender capillaries with decreased capillary loops in gas exchanging terminal villi, which we didn't talk about. So no. it felt like that wasn't the right answer. And then just to recap, Doppler of velocimetry assesses flow velocity in the umbilical arteries, not the umbilical veins. That was one of the choices during systole and diastole. It provides a measure of fetal systemic and placental vascular impedance. So an SD ratio or systolic over diastolic flow uh, velocity ratio greater than three is considered abnormal beyond 30 weeks gestation. And uh, like they said, placentas of fetuses that exhibit abnormal velocity are characterized by slender capillaries with decreased capillary loops. Routine Doppler ultrasonography in low-risk uh, populations is not of particular benefit to the pregnant person or the baby. However, Doppler for fetal assessment in high-risk pregnancies appears to improve a number of obstetric care outcomes. The growth-restricted fetus uh, may develop medial hypertrophy of the villus arterioles that leads to an increase in fetal systemic vascular resistance. And as the fetal heart pushes blood into the placenta through the umbilical arteries, the increased SVR may decrease diastolic flow in the umbilical artery, leading to an increased SD ratio. So I think that's the important thing, that the ratio will go up. Um, mm -hmm. And usually when we think of pressures... <laughs> flows, you might expect it to go down. This mm -hmm. diastolic flow may even become reversed 
when blood flows from the placenta to the umbilical artery. Whew. That was a tough one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. Yeah. Um, okay. Thank you guys, I guess. I'll, I think that's enough for today because tomorrow. That's enough for today. Yeah. Tomorrow I have a uh, fetal screening and okay. that's, that's the whole. All right. See you tomorrow, guys. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. If you like our show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We would love to hear from you, so please feel free to reach out to Daphna and I via email by sending your messages to nicupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Twitter at NICUPodcast. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.